0: Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in campaigning and community organising. We work with non-profit, community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunstreet develops community engagement and organising strategies to win campaigns both big and small. We train engagement staff, volunteers and organisers in leadership and power building And we help folks craft their own public narrative that tells a story to unite people and move them to act together. If you want to create change in your community in 2023, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you passionate about extending access to justice? Morris Blackburn has an exciting opportunity for a union partnership manager to join the firm on a 12-month contract based in the Melbourne CBD office. This is a high-profile opportunity where you can bring passion and enthusiasm to a role that will see you drive and promote the Morris Blackburn ethos to help reach more clients in need. To find out more go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. And for those field organisers out there listening or people who have got an organising background, uh, this is the job for you. You should, um, that's the kind of people that Morris Blackburn uh, are looking for and the skill sets you've got in uh, your organising capacity. Uh, So you should definitely go hit up Murray B's and uh, apply for that role uh, and finally today's episode is brought to you by SwiftFox. every moment on a campaign matters you need the tools that you can trust the lists that are up to date the phone banks that can change minds the emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline as well as those text blasts that distill your message perfectly SwiftFox crm is made for campaigners by campaigners and to find out more Simply go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast, which drops every Friday. That dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we're going abroad, not that far though. We're just going across the ditch to lovely New Zealand, Aotearoa, to talk to Neil Jones, who is the former chief of staff to Jacinda Ardern former Prime Minister, and he's the Managing Director for Capital NZ, which is one of New Zealand's leading public affairs agencies. Neil and I will have a bit of a chat about – well, originally it was actually just a conversation about the uh, election year that is happening in New Zealand, the election will be held later in the year. Um, But when we booked this uh, episode, we didn't know that Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister, was going to resign. So we've got a lot to talk about in today's episode, so uh, look out for that. Um, Also, don't forget, uh, if you like the show, give us five stars on – uh Apple Podcasts and Spotify when you're done listening to the episode uh, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. And follow us on all of our Dun Street socials, which is Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Uh, we're also, just to mention, we're doing these episodes audio-visual now, very modern. So you can see our ugly mugs as well as hear us. So if you want to check us out, uh, you can watch us on uh, on YouTube and make sure you hit the subscribe button. Okay, let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Wednesday morning uh, on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and uh, we are going overseas. This is our first overseas episode, I think, since... The start of the year, which uh, is exciting, uh, and a lot to talk about. Uh, he's the former chief of staff to just Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, and now uh, a managing director at Capital NZ, which is New Zealand's leading public affairs agency. Uh, Neil Jones, Kura, and welcome back to Socially Democratic,
1: Kura Stephen. Good to be back.
0: I think when we uh, scheduled this interview uh, in the calendar earlier in the year. Uh, as a sort of a preview for the 2023 uh, general elections in New Zealand, uh, did you think that the Labour Party would have a different leader heading into this important campaign?
1: No, I really didn't. Um, as as most people who do political commentary find, normally events make a fall of any predictions you've made. So I did a lot of stuff sort of late last year talking about the contours of the 2023 election campaign, and all of those were about Jacinda Ardern and her, her as leader leading Labour into it. So, yeah, no, I wouldn't have expected that. I think, you know, there'd been a bit of speculation that, um, you know, that she might leave, but not speculation that anyone really took seriously, I don't think. And certainly when asked, um, Jacinda had sort of been quite clear she was seeing it through to the election, which, you know, in hindsight is something you have to say, because the moment you say that you're stepping down, I think you become a lame duck. So probably the answer to that is I am fighting the election until the exact moment you're announcing you're not.
0: Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a fair reflection. Did it? catch folks in the party by surprise the announcement when she um i think i at the time i was uh in a meeting doing some trainings with uh some organizers and i saw someone texted me and it just it threw me like i was mid sort of stream talking about something you know and i looked and i went what in my brain thought what the
1: <laughs> yeah look i mean it, it did come as a real shock to people i think no one really expected it um it was you know Jacinda Ardern has had such a. She's been such an important leader for the Labour Party and the centre left in New Zealand. Um, she's sort of, sort of took Labour out of its years of trouble and turmoil and made it sort of a a not just a force to be reckoned with, but but a a government people could be proud of. And so I think the idea of what is Labour without Jacinda Ardern, I don't I don't think people had really thought that through. And so it took a bit to process. Um, I think equally sort of surprising for people was Grant Robertson, who was the Deputy Prime Minister, is still the Finance Minister. He was always seen as the natural successor, and at the same time he announced he wouldn't be standing for the Prime Ministership. So I think there was sort of a double shock in a way for people.
0: Yeah, that did surprise me. That did. That was a, yeah, double shock's the right term, okay? I was going to say that did surprise me. Obviously nothing surprised me more than actually the fact that uh, Jacinda was stepping down, but um, Grant not recontesting uh, as well, what what's the thought process there? Do you think from Grant? Because I I really rate him.
1: Yeah, I mean Gr- Grant Grant said that he'd sort of he'd indicated before when he'd lost the leadership races that he wouldn't do it again. I I think to be honest, I think he's probably just as tired as Jacinda is. I mean, the reason she gave is that she was burnt out, that she was that she just exhausted herself through COVID and the economic response. And I think that's fair. I don't think anyone. You know, one of the things I think people sort of reflected on was at first they were shocked and then they sort of said actually I kind of get it I kind of get that she's she's sort of led New Zealand through this period where anyone would be exhausted and I think Grant Robertson has probably been through the same kind of experience Um, I think he probably looked at it and thought you know I've got the finance job down Pat, I'm doing that, do I have what it takes to step up and be Prime Minister and leader through an election campaign and probably just felt it wasn't wasn't the time for him and I guess you've got to respect that
0: uh, we, um, you sort of mentioned before that uh, you, you consider that it, it was a surprise, but if you look back and think, oh, maybe there actually were some telltale signs um, to uh, indicate that this may have been the case, what were some of those, I mean, I know that hindsight's a you know, wonderful mm. thing, but what were some of those telltale signs that perhaps her motivation for the job uh, was less than what was required to be the head, head of uh, a government?
1: I mean, she always did a good job of showing herself as being on her game. You never sort of looked at her and went, wow, she, she's, you know, she's not performing. But I think there are, over the last six to 12 months, I think there's been a number of issues that have kind of got on top of the government and I haven't seen the kind of sharp political management that you might expect. Um, and I think perhaps not sort of tackling some of those issues and really being as focused on on the ball Politically, I think that might reflect just a bit of exhaustion. Um, I think, you know, COVID really has taken a lot out of the senior leadership of the party, and you know they, you know, Jacinda Ardern just absolutely worked her guts out through the COVID pandemic and through the economic response. And I think, I think perhaps that that led to a maybe a lack of um, focus on some of the sort of bread and butter politics. And I think that probably in hindsight. Maybe a signal, um, but that's just me speculating.
0: I mean, let's dig into that a little bit. You make an interesting point that I don't think that is unique to just New Zealand uh, politics. Any government that was governing through the COVID pandemic, the, the, the reflections coming out of it is that they are knackered. The politicians, mm-hmm. the staff that support those politicians, the experience was is that... It was two years of just exhausting work to keep on top of it because it was something that was unpredictable. You couldn't control uh, and you had to, well, if you're a government that gave a shit and actually wanted to come out with some responses that help support the community and, uh, mm. and, and deal with, you know, the various variants that continue to develop uh, throughout the, the, the lifetime of the pandemic, people came out of that going, I'm just knackered.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as you say, if, if you're a government, one of the governments that just said, "Oh well, we'll let it rip and see what happens," um, maybe you had a bit more of a relaxing pandemic. But, um, certainly, I mean, Australia will be similar. But certainly, for New Zealand, I can tell you, the people in the Beehive, um, our executive building, you know, the 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 ministers, the senior officials, the advisors, they absolutely worked their guts out. You know, they were they were tracing every single case, every single rumored case. They were working pretty much 24-7. And I don't think people necessarily recognise it, but um, Jacinda Ardern actually as Prime Minister took quite a hands-on role with the pandemic. Um, you know, She did listen to the science and she did follow the advice of science, but she wasn't one to just leave it to officials and say, well, you can you can go run the pandemic response. She actually took a very, very hands-on approach. And I think that was part of why we had such a successful response but I think it also probably took a toll.
0: I mean, does that go to her her style of leadership, uh, that she felt the need to sort of really get involved? Where does that where does that motivation in terms of her leadership Look,
1: come from? I, I think it was a particular crisis that she felt, you know, she had to lead, but also she's a details person. I think people, often often she was dismissed because when she became Prime Minister, she was a younger woman and she had quite a following on social media and in the media, and people sort of dismissed her as being, all comms and no detail was actually anyone who'd worked with her knew that she was a policy wonk. She was someone who was intensely focused on the detail of policy. I remember, you know, going to going to you know meetings when I was working there as chief of staff or as political director, and you know most MPs sort of they've had a look at the had a look at the papers, but they go and have lots of thoughts. She was the one who would say, "Well, actually, point you know, fifteen. If I actually want to query that, and she had actually done the, done the policy thinking." So that's, she is very much a details person. And so I think she she had a sense of responsibility through that crisis and a sense that there needed to be a a real sense of leadership from the Prime Minister down through the public service. And so I think that's probably what, what led to that. She wasn't happy to just leave it to officials to sort of do whatever they did, which, you know, the original plan from the Ministry of Health was to basically go door to door and see if people were still alive. Um, and we ended up with I think quite a bold response, which at the time seemed absurd. It took political leadership. I mean, I remember talking to people in government two weeks before our borders shut, saying it is, the borders are not going to close with the world, and it is inconceivable we would ever shut the border with Australia. And if you'd relied on just the sort of advice through the public service, you wouldn't have had those bold calls that we had, which I think in times like that require political leadership.
0: It, it, not that it was a competition in any way, stretch, stretch of the imagination, but silly, at some points it felt like it was a bit of a kind of a who can go harder, Victoria or New Zealand, the way that we were. You know, you're right. I, I never thought that we'd ever be able to. In fact, there was an argument there that in the constitution you cannot restrict movement between the borders of our own states within the federation, mm-hmm. yet that happened. Like um, You're right. I don't think we could ever conceive a notion of that you could not move between Australia and New Zealand, yet that happened. Um, yeah. It was actually quite remarkable, um, the leadership that was shown by Jacinda over the course of that, um, that pandemic.
1: Yeah, and I mean, she was able to bring people with her. I mean, that the, the leadership in the time wasn't just making those calls, but it was actually at a time when people were afraid and when there was great danger, you know, she was able to go in front of the country on a daily basis and really talk people through the reasoning why she was doing it, why it was important we all played our part, and actually got people to agree and comply um, with some pretty, you know, in hindsight, some pretty major um, imp- infringements on civil liberties, but ones that we agree collectively were necessary for the time. And again, I think, you know, talking to any fair minded person across the political spectrum, they recognise that in that time of crisis, she was able to make those calls and bring people with her. And, you know, as a result, there are as many as 20,000 people alive today who would otherwise not be alive. And that's quite sobering when you think about it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a story that I think a lot of us take for granted, is uh, what could have happened if people didn't show the leadership that uh, Jacinda and her government did show, because we only need to look at the examples of what happened in the United States in the early parts of the pandemic. It's just horrific.
1: Well, this is the thing, right? Mo- most people in New Zealand, and obviously since Omicron, in the end of the elimination strategy, there's been a, you know, we've had more more deaths here, but it's not common to have close family members and friends who have died of COVID in New Zealand. Um, When I talk to people in places like the UK and the US, they all have friends and family who have died of COVID. Mm. And in general in New Zealand, we just don't. And one of the things I sort of reflect on sometimes when I hear some of the people in hindsight who say, oh, well, it was all a bit overwrought, this whole COVID thing. You know, the government didn't need to do what it did. We didn't have to wear masks. We didn't have to lock down. And, and they only see sort of the restrictions and the and the negative implications of that. And they never think to themselves, well, you know, who are these 20,000 people? You know, who, who might that have been? And I think if you knew that it was your father or brother or son or daughter who would have died as a result of those restrictions not being there, you might take a very different view. But I think because these are 20,000 people who are theoretical, it's very easy to take a negative view in hindsight.
0: Do you think in the sticking with this hindsight question about her, her decision to uh to not recontest the the election this year was there any external pressure as well do you think that factored into her decision to not go around again and i'm external i'm talking um outside of her immediate team within the caucus um, media you know the community was anything else else weighed on her mind do you reckon
1: Certainly not within the caucus. I mean, Jacinda Ardern has been an absolutely towering figure in the Labour caucus. Um, every single person there knows they're there because of her. So she has a level of loyalty not I've never seen in the Labour Party in my life. Um, but, look, I think it's, you can't avoid commenting on the fact there was a, a pretty extreme amount of negativity and um, toxicity towards her from a certain sector of the population. And I think that's broken into two categories. One is kind of your, um, the more extreme end, which is sort of your your anti-vaxxer conspiracy theory types. who Yeah, who basically, you know, it got, there was the protest outside parliament last, about this time last year, which had people holding nooses on the court and threatened to hang her. Um, There were, you know, several people have been, um, you know, the police have had to, (laughs) have had to, um, go and see, and I think you know. There's been some have gone through court, who have threatened to kill her. Um, she would go to public events, and if they were publicised, there would be conspiracy theorists waiting outside, threatened to kill her. I mean, it was pretty nasty, horrendous stuff. Um, so there were there were real security risks. I mean, she she ended up leaving beforehand. But um, the Waitangi Day this year, our National Day, normally up at Waitangi where the treaty was signed, um, she'd made a bit of a tradition of. Um, you know, Jacinda and, and her senior ministers would cook a barbecue for just members of the public and they'd come and be served sausages. And it was just a really, you know, great thing about New Zealand's democracy, that accessibility and sort of casual relate you know, nature of our democracy. And the security services said to her, Sorry, you're gonna to have to cancel that. We can't guarantee your safety. And so, you know, I think that that would have I don't think these things are I don't think that would have caused her to resign, but it can't have helped I don't think the other is there is just a there there is a certain segment of the population who I think became quite um online um I I don't want to um pigeonhole but generally of the boomer generation generally male um and they had become quite radicalized that she was you know it was quite quite misogynistic at time the abuse um some of it was that she was giving too much to Maori. That it was some kind of racialized thing. That she was, um, you know, undermining our democracy by by helping Maori too much. Um, but it was there was there was sort of a a level of I think vitriol on the right that um, I think became quite unpleasant. And that I think those two factors probably didn't help things. As I say, she's been quite clear that that wasn't a reason for her resignation, and certainly. She's never been one to wallow in sort of self-pity or anything. She's always just said, well, that's the job and I get on with it. But I, I do I do think it's caused a lot of reflection in New Zealand, particularly from women, about, you know, if this is what happens when you have a woman prime minister and that's how, that's how they get treated, what does that say for our democracy and for other women stepping up to positions in public life? It really does start to make you think about... Um, what impact this kind of behaviour has on our democracy?
0: When I did hear the, uh, when she made the announcement, uh, I, I, I immediately went back to the time when this, uh, the Finnish Prime Minister had visited uh, New Zealand and they were both doing a stand-up and, then, and Jacinda got that dickhead question that was just this broad brush, mm. um, kind of, I can't, I can't even remember what the
1: question was, well, so the lines as are you visiting because you're both kind of young woman?
0: Yeah, 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 just like the laziest of lazy generalizations. Uh, and I couldn't help but think back to that and just sort of see the way that both of them handle, handle the question, We're trying to be polite, but you know, but deep down, saying you are such a dickhead. Can you, like I just why do I need to answer that question, you moron? And I can't help but think back to that moment, going, you know, what? I've had enough of this. This is just who who are these imbeciles that I'm operating with on a daily basis and I'm talking about the New Zealand media and Mm. I tend to find your media less snarky and vitriolic as compared to what we have in Australia like you know your Mm. media your media are more like for the Australian audiences listening to to compare the pair um, your media appear more like a sort of a football writers from the Guardian type of media (laughs) you know less kind of like I'm going to try and tear your house down kind of media that we have in Australia
1: and when we don't have Murdoch and Sky News and all that kind of stuff but Look, I I, I think my reflection on it was, I remember when Helen Clark, you know, former Labour Prime Minister, I remember when she was PM, she faced a lot of kind of misogyny and, um, you know, people would accuse her of being a secret lesbian and all this, you know, just ridiculous sort of rumours. And I I, I hoped when Jacinda came on the scene that we'd move past that. Um, You know, early on there was a protest against her by some farmers in the election campaign in 2017 And someone held up a sign saying, she's a pretty communist. And I, you know, there were things like that and I thought, but they were kind of derided and I thought, well, there'll be a few exceptions, but, you know, we've grown as a society and maybe we're past that. But, you know, if anything, it's possibly worse what Jacinda Ardern received than what Helen Clark received. It was, I think, social media and the rise of clickbait. I think we've had a change in the media environment and a group of people becoming utterly brainwormed online that... Um, you know, I, I was down in Stewart Island, New Zealand last week on holiday. And I was on a fishing charter and talking to the boat captain. seemed like a nice guy. One of the other sort of people on there, British tourist, said, "Oh, what do you think about Jacinda Ardern?" And he just goes, "She's evil. She's an evil woman." I just thought, really, you know, she's evil. I don't think she's. I don't. I don't think any reasonable criticism of her would say she's evil. You ask most National Party people I know, they'd say, "Oh, no, she's a nice woman. Disagree with their policies, blah blah blah." But just that level of vitriol—it just—it it is a worry.
0: Sticking with the media, how did they report it? Uh, because and, the, and I, the, here's where I'm coming from with this question. In Australia, when a political leader on the left resigns um, after you know a what I would call a stellar career, rarely does it happen in politics. Generally, right? Rarely do people politicians have the opportunity to go out on their own terms normally it's the electorate that (laughs) tells them you're done Um, but those moments when it does happen um, certainly here in the with the Australian media there's always they don't believe the reason there's always an underlying factor you know there's a cynicism like Steve Brax is a great example he said you know basically my son uh, I, I just as a father I've just not been home enough and one of my sons wrapped his car around a pole a couple of months ago from i don't wasn't sure if it was drink driving but it certainly wasn't a great experience for the family and he thought i, I, I missed that i needed to be there as a father and you know what I've, I've done enough i've given a commitment to the public now it's time for me to return but the i remember at the time the media there's something going on that that can't be right he's done something right and then nothing ever came of it and it, that was the honest answer that was the reason why he pulled the pin um how has the media responded to the this shock announcement from from jacinda
1: yeah, I mean, I think the the two sort of narratives that came up. One was, well, she's leaving because her popularity is declining and she doesn't want to lose. Which, you know, it's true her popularity had been declining. I, knowing Jacinda and how she operates, I think that would have made it harder. I think she would have wanted to leave Labor. I think if she was polling really highly, I think she'd have found it much more comfortable leaving. I think leaving at a time when Labour was behind in the polls, and her popularity, popularity was declining. That probably made it harder for her. So I don't really buy that. The other one was, um, which, which mostly, to be fair, reflected concerns from the left, was um, that that argument that she'd been driven out, bullied out by misogynists. And I I, I also think that you know she, that is probably places her. I think it's probably unfair. She she was very you know clear. She was just exhausted. And I think to, to say that it was a simple case of there was too much misogyny so she quit I think kind of diminishes her somewhat because that's not something that she has ever, you know, been cowered by. Um, but look, I thought by and large the media coverage was pretty fair. Um, actually stepping back a bit, um, I think they were able to get out of some of the really, you know, silly day-to-day partisan nonsense that, that gets played out and have a bit more of a of a broad look at her, her legacy um there was the usual stuff about you know the national party lines about oh well she's she meant well but she delivered nothing which is just not true um but i I think you know ultimately it was reasonably fair and i think hopefully as time goes on there's a more nuanced understanding new zealand of her leadership once we sort of step back from from as i say that partisan silly nonsense
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds, emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. Oh, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions in a moment about her her legacy, but I have a question about the timing of her decision. Um, Were, I mean, folks within the party, were they a bit sort of pissed that she waited till the election year itself uh, you know, I, I just wondered. From I've got my campaign hat on. If I was a campaign director, I'd sort of go, oh, "Damn it! Could you just <laughs> just before Christmas to let the new leader bet in, particularly when the whole country is basically at the beach or watching the cricket, and give them time to sort of set up their shot before you move into league? I know you can't do these things perfectly, and you can't control everything, but I just wondered: was there an attitude amongst the party about that?
1: Oh, look, I've heard a couple of people say, "Oh, why didn't why didn't she go six months ago if she was going to go?" Kind of thing. Give the new leader some some time, but. I mean, most people have been pretty understanding because I think, you know, genuinely, she said, "Look, I, I, I thought I'd find the strength through the summer to carry on. The, you know, I'd reg- regain my, you know, I'd get over my exhaustion and we'd, we'd push on." But she said, "I, you know, over the summer, she'd reflected and she just didn't have anything left in the tank." I think people kind of accept that. Like she probably, with, with all the best will in the world, thought, "I'll take a break," and it just didn't work for her. And I think had look, had we had, you know. Hindsight 2020, as you might have left last year, but the reality is Chris Hipkins as Prime Minister has had a few weeks, a couple of weeks on the job. He's started well, doesn't seem to have disadvantaged him. Um, You know, most of the team is staying on, so it's not like he's had to bring in a whole new team or anything. And, you know, I think the public are becoming more open to leadership changes late in the piece than they used to be. I mean, I remember Jacinda Ardern became leader of the Labour Party seven weeks out from the 2017 election. Um, so, you know, compared to that, nine months seems like an absolute eternity. So so I think people are less of the view they need to get to know someone over sort of a two-year period and more open to just saying, look, we'll give you a go.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, it, it, look, it makes sense. And it, having hit, come out of the the holiday break, he sort of I, I had that vibe. Certainly, when I watched a press conference, it was like, you know, I yeah, I didn't really think about this over the Christmas break, and I just like, yeah. nah.
1: The other thing about Chris Hopkins as well is that he's um, you know, he's he is very experienced, and the public do know him, so he hasn't started from nothing. He hasn't had to build a build a profile from from zero. You know, he was the person. You know, he was the lead minister who took New Zealand through the COVID response. He was on our TVs regularly and there's a high level of trust there. So I think he already starts with a bit of profile, which perhaps if another leader had been chosen who didn't have the profile, it would have been a lot harder.
0: And We'll talk about uh, Chris in a, in a moment. I just want to get your reflections, because you just mentioned before about the national uh, lines about Jacinda's tenure as prime minister was, yeah, lovely person, but didn't do anything. What is actually the legacy of the Ardern government that um, the Labour Party can look back on fondly in years to come?
1: I think there's a, a couple of themes. One of them is her management of, or her leadership of New Zealand through a t- time of crisis not seen by any New Zealand Prime Minister since perhaps the Second World War and the Great Depression. And that was obviously March 15. There was the terrorist attack. Um, you know, a, a lone gunman um, shot down, you know, around 50 Muslims in, at prayer in, a, in Christchurch. It was a horrendous. Uh, tragedy that I think you know to this day I, I cannot wrap my head around how that happens and it, it shocked New Zealanders to the core um, it was something that really um, we couldn't comprehend and I think what Jacinda managed to do there was with her immediately coming out and saying they are us and she brought the Muslim community into the New, New Zealand sense of identity made New Zealanders sort of Come around the Muslim community and really show that that love, that araha. and you know Muslims had always been seen in New Zealand as sort of this you know this group of migrants who were kind of had come here recently and weren't really part of society. And she was able to say, "No, we're all part of that same community." And I think that that love was a great part of piece of nation building. I, I have Muslim friends who are will forever be thankful to Jacinda Ardern for the way that she responded to that crisis and I think importantly did the opposite of what the terrorists intended, which was to try to highlight differences, drive a wedge and inflict hatred and actually Jacinda was able to turn that into a moment of national mourning and solidarity and nation building. So I think that is possibly possibly her finest moment. There were a series of natural disasters, including the Fukari White Island eruption, which she led New Zealand through, but also the COVID response, as I've mentioned, which um, did save thousands of lives. And actually, despite all the naysaying of the right, um, and to this day they'll claim that she destroyed the economy, New Zealand's economy came out of that stronger than most other countries and has had the lowest unemployment, some of the lowest unemployment in the world, some of the strongest economic growth. So I think. Her leadership through crisis will be what defines her. But I think when you go to her policy legacy, um, the line is that she hasn't she, she hasn't achieved anything, that there's been no delivery. And I think that that is unfair for a couple of reasons. One of them is that I think obviously COVID did disrupt her policy agenda. Um, when Jacinda Ardern became Prime Minister she, and ran for the Labour leadership, she did not do so to manage a crisis. She did so um, in order to enact a policy agenda. And then COVID came along. And so obviously that has disrupted things. But I think also as someone who is such a great communicator, um, Jacinda Redurn often didn't communicate her successes very well. And to this day, if you ask people, they'll say, oh, the government's failed on housing and they failed on child poverty. Those are two of the things they were supposed to make progress on. Actually, I had to look at the stats. And if you look at housing, for example, um, one in every 11 houses in New Zealand was built under this government. Um, you know, we are undergoing the biggest housing boom in New Zealand history. Um, you know, state housing, there have been thousands of state houses built. It is one of the biggest expansions of state housing in decades. So there is progress being made there. On child poverty, 65,000 children out of poverty. The Child Poverty Reduction Act, which just had even brought in, requires reporting on all measures and all of those measures despite the pandemic we'd expect things to go backwards all of those measures are heading the right direction so I think actually there is a policy legacy to be proud of and I think Labour probably needs to do a better job of telling that story.
0: A couple of things done, Pak, the first one obviously at the top of your remarks was this related to the, the, the terrorist attack um, in Christchurch. The There's a course at the Kennedy School uh, that uh, Marshall Gantz gives on public narrative. And one of the examples of uh, a story of us, and one of the, the, um, the modules we talk about is called the empathetic bridge in leadership how a leader can use this empathetic bridge to bring people with you and embody solidarity and a moment of us. And the example that he uses. Is the speech that Jacinda Ardern gives to? I I think it's the memorial. It's outside. I I remember seeing the footage of it, and we the students are asked to unpack it, Um, and it you know, and not to sort of. I don't mean to um, sort of make an academic point about the speech. I actually mean to make a, a point about its. Um, ability to move a community, that, you know, effective communication from a political leader, and a lot of the times we talk about leadership in politics and all of its failings. But here is a moment in which we uh, see someone unite a community. Just to bolster your remarks, I mean, it is now taught as an academic piece of um, communication, um, and for all the right reasons, right? And I think globally, surely, certainly, as an Australian, and I'm even beyond our shores. It's, it, it was one of the moments where people around the world sat up and went, geez, who is this? Who is this Jacinda Ardern in this island off the coast of Australia? This is a remarkable bit of political leadership.
1: Yeah. And if I could just share a little story, my my friend Nuruddin, he's now a Labour councillor in Wellington. And when I asked him, you know, why are you standing? He said, you know, I'd never really felt like I belonged and was part of the community until after March 15, and there was so much grief and mourning. And then I saw Jacinda Ardern's leadership, and I saw the response from New Zealanders, and I felt that I was part of the community, and I felt I was able to step up and actually contribute and represent. And he was elected, he stood, he was elected, and I just just think of that, and I think he would never have entered politics, he would never have felt comfortable standing up, knocking on doors, standing for election as a representative, had it not been for that moment of nation-building.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, fan, it's fantastic. I, I just, um, the other thing I wanted to, well, as you were saying that, I'm thinking to myself, to the point you said before, that if there was a criticism of the Ardern government is it, its inability to communicate some of the wins that it's done in a policy setting. Is that, a, is that not a bit of a paradox of her leadership? She is an incredibly good communicator. Like, that is a strength she has, yet there's criticism against the government broadly that they've not been able to communicate some of the great... I mean, you just listed off some of the policy achievements they've done whilst under operating under conditions of uncertainty because of a bloody global pandemic and then the implications of that because of what's happened to the economy. Is that a paradox? What's happened there? Why is it she herself is a great communicator, yet the government hasn't been able to communicate some of the things it's done for the community?
1: (laughs) I I don't have a simple answer there. Um, I'm not sure I know myself, but look... uh, Jacinda Roden's never been one for the sort of cut and thrust of politics. She's never been one of those people who's like a political animal in that sense who really wants to have the argument and take it on. She's she has a very different style of leadership and I think that was a style of leadership that served us very well. Um, served us better than someone who is a political operative might have. But you know, in opposition she wasn't someone who was known as being a, you know, a someone who who would score big hits on the government and run up issues attacking them? That wasn't really her style. But regardless of that, even when she was a relatively junior MP, when I worked in Parliament, people would say, "Oh, you work for Labour? Do you know Jacinda Ardern?" was always what they asked me because there was a there was a charisma and an authenticity that people recognised. So I, I I just wonder if perhaps that's why that that she's not someone who who relishes the political fight. She's more about. She's based on, you know, based on principle, and she she likes to lead, and she likes to sort of see the better nature of people.
0: Let's uh, turn to the future, um, and uh, in particular, the new leadership that your country is now under, and uh, also the Labor Party. Um, Chris Hipkins, uh, elected unopposed, was his ascension uh, to the leadership. Reasonably smooth. It certainly appeared to be the case from outside, but is there any gossip you want to give us an insight about how it's sended to the leadership? Because these things aren't always as straightforward as they may appear.
1: Yeah. I mean, as I said, I think, you know, my, my emotional reaction when I saw Jacinda had resigned was, um, you know, first of all, shock. And then I thought, oh, well, I guess we're all getting in behind Grant and he'll he'll run and we'll be okay. And then when about 30 seconds later I saw that, that Grant wasn't running, there was sort of this question about well, what what what's left? Is this you know, Ardernism without Ardern? What does that mean? Um, Chris can seem the obvious contender, there were a few other names in the in the um, race. Um, Michael Wood's name came up. He's uh, the Workplace Relations and um, Minister, and also the Transport Minister. He's led the Fair Pay Agreements legislation, which is a major industrial relations reform that will um, restore some collective bargaining at an industry scale. Um, He's he's sort of a, a, a favourite of the unions and and a lot of support in the party. Um, Kitty Allen, who's a um, you know relatively new young Māori MP um, from the east coast region of New Zealand. Um, so that you know there, there there was a couple of other contenders, but Chris Hipkins seemed early on the obvious choice. Um, he has the most experience in Parliament. He's someone who. Um, You know, has operated at a very senior level, was known by New Zealanders, was trusted through the COVID response, um, and was seen to be someone who could sort of hit the ground running on day one. And so my fear, I had two fears. One fear was that we would end up with a leadership race while in government, and the start of the political year would be Labour MPs going around every small town in the country doing a rodeo to gain support of party members, which... I think would have looked a bit self-indulgent at a time when there's a cost-of-living crisis and the Prime Minister's resigned and people would say, come on, guys, what are you doing? Mm. Um, they avoided that um, through having 66% support. Um, over 66% support is a threshold in caucus to, to not have to go to that runoff. Um, I was also concerned there might just be media jostling, that you'd see sort of stories about um, deals being done in horse trading which again might look a bit self-indulgent. None of that happened. It was a remarkably civil process. Um, they were all up in Napier for their caucus retreat. They basically closed the doors, had a good chat, and all ended up uniting behind Chris Hipkins. Um, it's not to say there weren't you know, people discussing the other options, but ultimately everyone said, no, we can unite around Chris. He's the obvious person. And it was utterly seamless Um uh, quite a departure from some of the other times I've seen the Labour Party when there's been leadership selections.
0: I must admit, I, my observations of the New Zealand Labour Party has always been—you've always been, you're always been a, a little bit more mature than uh, your cousins across the uh, the Tasman when it comes to this sort of stuff.
1: Uh, I don't know, Stephen. I was there <laughs> during the sort of Shira Kamla era where there was blood on the floor. There were people in the media slamming each other. It's um, it's been pretty ugly in New Zealand Labour in the past, and to be fair, the National New Zealand National Party has been had had similarly ugly times. So. I have to say, at a time when New Zealanders were in election year, worried about the economy, uh, shocked by the resignation of a Prime Minister, to just see a seamless transition, I think was, you know, was, was, was exactly what Labour needed.
0: Tick, tick. Tell us a bit about Chris Hipkins. Like, where's he from? Um, what's his background? Where's his, what's his politics? What do, we, what do we expect from him as a leader?
1: So he, he's the MP for, for Rimataka, which is uh, – Based in the satellite city of Upper Hutt, um, just north of Wellington, sort of a working class electorate, working working middle class electorate, very kind of middle New Zealand. Um, he's he's from the Hutt Valley, um, so he's you know he's and he, he loves it. He's sort of he's a bit of a he's a bit of a daggy dad in his dress sense. He's the sort of guy who'll rock up in cargo shorts and um, you know dirty old hoodie. You kind of go mate, what are you wearing? Um, I don't know if you saw over the ditch, but we had. Um, There was during the during the uh, Napier caucus retreat, there was a he was door stopped in the street, and he was wearing a dirty dog sunglasses, otherwise known as speed dealers. Um, He had an old black hat on, and he had a dirty old black hoodie, and he just looked like some guy like selling drugs on the corner, and and that became a bit of a meme. Um, But but you know he's he's he is um, so on the one hand he he is very based in in that community. Um, My my mum, sort of, she'll be at the upper hut, mighta ten hardware store, and she'll, you know, bump into him there in his cargo shorts buying DIY supplies. So there is sort of that to him. At the same time, he is, he is a, um, a real political operative. He is a political animal. He is someone who knows politics well, plays it hard. Um, he understands parliamentary process and the machinery of government. I think better than anyone else in the Labor caucus. So, like, he knows how to get things done, and so I think he brings that mix of kind of a um, someone who is deeply political and a political strategist, with also having those roots in that community, and not just being sort of a, a cosmopolitan, urban stereotype like you might expect, um, or like the right might betray a labor leader. And so I think there's sort of there is there is a sense in labor that he is someone who can be a foil to Christopher Luxon, the opposition leader. Um, Luxon is a former CEO of E New Zealand, um, his policies have been very much sort of tax cuts for the wealthy and that sort of thing, and having someone who is more based in a working and middle-class community and who is sort of more enmeshed in that community might, I think, be a, be a use, useful foil against Luxon. A nice contrast.
0: What are some of the yeah. – I mean, you've t- you touched on some of the strengths of his leadership, particularly as a political operator. Um, what other strengths are there that would be – um, an asset going into a campaign year.
1: Well, I think part of the government's problem is that there are a series of policies that had sort of that that had got the public offside, and some of the, some of these weren't even the substance of the policies. I mean, there's the TVNZ Red New Zealand merger, which I don't think anyone really cares about. Um, there's the Three Waters water infrastructure reform, which has become bogged down. Which again, I don't think people are concerned about the detail of. But I think they had become symbols of a government that was focused on their own their own priorities and not on the public's priority, which is cost of living. And that has been the overwhelming, um, the, you know, the number one issue by far is cost of living. And I think the government hadn't really shown New, New Zealanders that it understood the challenges they were facing and it hadn't demonstrated that it was able to help assist New Zealanders through that and it looked like it was just focused on the wrong things. And I think Chris Hipkins is in a position, possibly more than even Grant Robertson would have been, to be able to say, actually, you know what? We're ditching these things you don't like, and we do a bunch of things you do like, and do a bit of a reset for election year. And what the early polls show, I mean, Hipkins is more trusted than the opposition leader, Christopher Luxon. He rates higher in the preferred PM, and Labor's shot up to be leading national again. And what, what I'm hearing around the place is people saying, you know what? you know what, I had kind of gone off Labour and Jacinda, but look, this Chris Hipkins guy, I'm willing to give him a chance. And I think what's happened is the phone had gone off the hook for a lot of voters. I think the phone's back on the hook. Doesn't mean Labour's necessarily won them, but they're listening again.
0: It's interesting you talk about cost of living. Obviously, that was one of the major issues. It was the number one issue for the federal election and the number one issue for the most recent Victorian state election. Now, political orthodoxy normally tells us that's a terrible Dynamic for a centre-left party to try and win on. Yet, uh, federally, going as coming from opposition into government, the Albanese campaign managed to turn that into a positive boon, and rated mm. Labor rated stronger in polling on cost of living than the Tories. And the same as uh, example in the Victorian state election, um, and the Andrews government used you know incumbency to drive home a whole bunch of measures, uh, policy announcements that went to the hip pocket of Victorian voters and be able to say to them, look, this is we're actually fanning about trying to deal with the cost of living. We get it, we understand it, and these are the things we're kind of trying to do, free kinder and a whole bunch of other things that, that I won't bother going into. What are you seeing from the new Hipkins government in terms of addressing that cost of living issue and making it a positive for Labor?
1: Well, I mean, the, the analysis of Labor strategists is that in a cost of living crisis, who are you going to trust to, to support you and your family? And their view is... Labor is traditionally the party that backs working families, and national is the party that backs the wealthiest few. And so the first thing to do is to not, not shy away from cost of living. And I think you know, I think labor, over the last 12 months, they, they've made a few little poli- they've made a few policy initiatives to try and address cost of living, but they've almost seemed a bit embarrassed to talk about it. And I think there is a there's a recognition from Hipkins that actually it is the only issue. There is no getting away from it, and you have to actually lean really heavily into it and recognise that's the issue and then show you're the one. And so I think what we're going to see, he's yet to make major announcements, but I think we'll see a series of big announcements. I suspect there'll be something around tax or family support in the budget or leading up to the election. Um, National will go big on tax cuts. Um, Those tax cuts, they've already got tax cuts for property speculators and landlords lined up. They've got They've announced a tax policy. They've had to drop their other tax policy of the top tax, cutting the top tax rate. But their their tax package looks like it'll favour those on middle to higher incomes. And I think if 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 Chris Hopkins can put forward a tax package for lower and middle incomes, he'll actually be, he'll he'll be in a much better place to support, um, to show he's the the guy to back to support families. And also, Labor can be a bit creative. There, like you say, childcare and various other things. There are other costs that Labor can lean into and address and be more interventionist than a national party might be comfortable doing. So let, let's see what he has to do. But, I, but I, I think the attitude is right and the strategy is right.
0: Go big or go home, as I, I say. And, and Absolutely. Go, and go big early as well to give folks time to sort of uh, consume that new information before they um, make their influence.
1: Well, it also, also, like you don't want to be doing things at the last minute or promising if I'm elected again because then, the, then a credibility issue comes in. Yeah. They say, well, why haven't you done it yet?
0: Um, what about weaknesses? Not that I want to um, give it to your opposition about what the weaknesses would be, but if you're running the campaign for national, how are you going to contrast against um, the new leader?
1: I think, I mean, the, the line they're using at the moment is nothing's changed. So it's, it's basically, it's the same Labour government you were kind of t- a bit tired of. Nothing's changed. It's just, you know, I think the, the idea is basically it's Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party, but without Jacinda Ardern. Um, I'm not sure how well that's going to work because I think Chris Hipkins is being so deliberate in differentiating and showing that he's taking a change of approach that I think it's going to be hard for National to say it's the same Labour Party and, and tar Hipkins with some of the negativity attached to the previous um, leadership. So I'm not sure there. If I was them, I guess, I'm not sure to be honest. I don't quite quite know how I'd go it because um, Hipkins has done so well. I think if he hadn't been, I think if he had been less assured in a start, I think I might say, well, he's, you know, he's just the kind of third string person in the party. He's he's sort of the one of the also-rans and, you know, Jacinda's gone. Now it's time for Christopher Lux International and a natural change in the guard. But I'm just not sure they're going to be able to do that.
0: Let's talk about the electoral map uh, and the pathway to retaining a Labor government. Um, obviously, after the the last election, which was held during a, the COVID pandemic, uh, remind me twenty twenty one or twenty twenty was the last
1: uh, twenty twenty was the last election yeah,
0: twenty twenty. Uh, Labor went from a minority government in a coalition with a couple of other parties into a majority government, which is so that's a that was a rare thing for Labor anyway. I don't think you'd have to go back to the Helen Clark days to have been in that situation, is that right?
1: Well, was, wasn't even a the majority then. Yeah. Wow. Okay, right. It was the first ever majority under MMP.
0: Really? Oh, under MMP, yeah. of course, yeah, because Longy was um, pre that. Um, is the expectation that, um, that the party or the campaign is going to try and hang on to all of the turf that they've got right now and re- return as a majority government or is it a case of, yes, that's what we'll aim for but if we have to go into minority then – um, and then, what does that what does that electoral map yeah. look like? Like, because, and also explain to Victor- mm. Australians, Australian Victorians, explain to everyone else outside of Victoria as well, um, the how it works in New Zealand because it's not uh, it's not just a, uh, um, um, a set of electorates electing to a lower house. Mm. You've obviously got this different sort of set, set up there.
1: So, yeah, in New Zealand, you have two votes. You have your electorate vote, which decides your local MP, and you have your party vote, which decides what proportion of parliament will go to that party. Your party vote's the one that really matters for deciding who gets to run the country. And the Labour government having 50% is really a historical anomaly. No one expected it, and I don't expect we'll see it again for decades. So, you know, you always aim for a majority, but realistically, Labour will be wanting to get somewhere between 40 and 45, and then they'll need the Greens and possibly the Māori Party to get a majority. That's not unusual. Um national similarly will be aiming for 40 to 45 percent and they'll need the act party to form a majority
0: so then if you're looking at an electoral map in order to work out where do you allocate your campaign resources the the complexity of the new zealand system is that the entire two islands main islands i'm sure the smaller ones of new zealand uh is one electorate so you've got to campaign everywhere because you need to get the votes on the list right Where are you you allocating your resources to ensure that you're heading to that 40 to 45 number?
1: So the the difference is we don't have marginal electorates in the same way, and we do, but they don't really matter in terms of the makeup of Parliament. So as you say, we have sort of one big electorate for the party vote, and that means that you're not targeting areas so much as you're targeting individuals. So if you're a political party like Labour in New Zealand, you're actually basically ranking you're basically ranking individuals and saying, this is an individual who I think can either be persuaded to vote, who's going to vote, and can be persuaded to vote Labour, or we think we'll vote Labour if we can motivate them to vote, because of course we don't have compulsory voting. So really it's more individualised. You're targeting individuals based on who they are, rather than just going electorate to electorate.
0: And then eventually, the, those individuals come into clusters. Of you know, you know if, you, if there's this one woman in the middle of nowhere, you're probably gonna she's gonna be lower down on your list of even a <laughs> high person you want to persuade. But
1: well, you might you might give her a phone call if you're uh, if you've got her phone number, but you probably aren't going to trudge out there and knock on her door. No. Yeah, so I mean, you know, Labour will need to win sort of broadly what's called middle New Zealand. Um, they'll need to persuade them, and those are people who live in the suburbs. They are on lower to middle incomes, and they are the people who will switch their vote and might have gone off Labour but can come back. And they'll also need to, and they'll be in suburbs across towns and cities across New Zealand. Um, Similarly, you'll have your large groups of traditional core Labour vote, sort of working class, Māori Pacific vote, who will live in areas like South Auckland or Porirua. Um, And you'll need to get out there and just do a big get out the vote campaign and mobilise them. So those are kind of the contours, but it is it is much more of a, um, you know, looking at a national database and ranking people and then reaching out to them, than sort of sitting in one little area and knocking on every door.
0: That woman on her own, uh, her name's Heather, by the way. Um, uh, we uh, that was a really bad Kiwi joke there, there. Um, Neil, laugh with me, would you? Everyone, in my I, mind, I, I every,
1: missed I missed it entirely. Everyone's called Heather. I just always
0: felt that most my my mum's called my mum's called Heather. Exactly. Exactly, it's a beautiful name. But anyway, I digress. Um, what I do love about the the, the complexities and uh, to use your word, the contours of New Zealand politics and uh, and electoral politics is that it makes you as a campaign strategist, you've got to think on on various layers. And to uh, to just to pump the tires of the New Zealand Labour campaign operation. Um, I, I think some of the best campaigners have come out of your country because of that, because it forces you to consider many complexities as opposed to, uh, right, we just need to get to 45 seats. Here are the marginal seats. Here's where we allocate our resources. Um, it means that you've got to have a good data operation. It means you've got to have a good field team. It means, you, you know... Um, a, 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 above and beyond all the other things you normally would do in a traditional campaign, and I think that's props to, the, to you guys in terms of the way that you do operate in campaigns.
1: Yeah, and, and I think actually it's it's a good thing for our democracy as well because what it means is that you're actually looking at the whole country and any voter anywhere is someone you need to consider. Um, it's not a case of saying, well, I would care about you, but you're in a safe electorate, so I'm not going to bother. Mm. You actually, It actually forces a party to reach across the whole country in a way that other systems don't require it.
0: Absolutely. And I guess the the opposite of that is like the United States model where, you know, there are 52 million people living in California and no one campaigns to them because they're always going to vote democratic. Like it's just, uh, it's not a great thing for democracy. Uh, Neil Jones, thank you very much for your precious time today. We do appreciate uh, you giving us a bit of an update albeit a bit of a shock that um, uh, a great leader of uh, the global social democratic community has uh pulled the pin we wish her the best in her future endeavors um and also we wish the new hipkins labor government the best of luck going into this critically important election year uh i want to get you back on the show as we get closer and closer to the election we do have a great kiwi uh audience that listens to socially democratic and i know that um Um, we want to build on that so hopefully we can have you back later in the year as we get closer to the election actually has the election date been set yet
1: yeah october 14 oh has been set yep parliament rises on august 31 and there's then there's the formal campaign to october 14
0: lock it in your diary folks neil thank you very much for your time again
1: great talking cheers
0: hey there Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events. That will energize the community online and offline, and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.